Hi, everyone. I'm Beverly, and I'm with our sister's house. Welcome to Confabulation. Today, we will be talking about housing and components of discrimination, including domestic violence in the scenario. If you or anyone that you know is experiencing domestic violence, please contact our sister's house at our phone number 253-383-4275 or visit our website at oursistershouse.com. There are programs that support domestic violence. We are an advocacy organization, a nonprofit organization, and we have domestic violence advocacy and we have programs that will support domestic violence. So again, if you or anyone that you know are experiencing domestic violence, please call us at 253-383-4275. And now I'm gonna turn it over to our host, Bethel. Thank you, Beverly. Um, well, thank you everyone for being here. Uh, as Beverly said, we'll be talking about domestic violence and housing discrimination, um, pretty heavy topic. And I just wanted to kind of start off with um, an article that I read. So Harold Moss, who was the first black mayor of Tacoma and um, the president of the Tacoma and WCT, um, and then his then wife, uh, ended up being the executive director, the first one of Planned Parenthood in Pierce County. Uh, so when he moved, when they moved to Tacoma, they experienced um, housing discrimination because they're African-American. And he said that like despite, despite his um, like status, you know, eventually he, he came to Tacoma during the time when it was housing discrimination was like even more apparent than it is today, um, obviously back in that day. And uh, in the article, I read about redlining and how when he, him and his wife were looking for housing, um, it was very obvious that they were being pushed to find a home in an area that, you know, maybe wasn't the best. And, it was because of the race. So I have the definition of redlining here, which is um, redlining is a discrimin discriminatory practice that puts services, financial and otherwise, out of reach residents of certain areas based on race or ethnicity. It can be seen in the systemic denial of mortgages, insurance, loans, and other financial services based on location and the area's default history, rather than an individual's qualifications and creditworthiness. Notably, the policy of redlining is felt the most by residents and minority neighborhoods. Um, so part of redlining is like banks only lend white people uh, loans for, you know, if they want to get a house. And it that basically excludes everybody from the housing market. Um, it denies equity and like financial security and generational wealth for those minorities, which is a big form of, you know, Generational wealth, we all know that there's a big gap between black folks and white folks in this country um, because of things like redlining and housing discrimination, Jim Crow laws, obviously all stems back to slavery. 
Um, and just recently, a UW professor actually who joined a faculty in Seattle um, was looking for a house with their family. And basically they were talking to other faculty members about how they had just moved in the area and how they were looking for a place to live and ask for suggestions. And when they told um, their coworkers what areas they were being shown, they were all shocked because they all lived in the same neighborhood. So they were wondering why this professor was being shown places that UW professors usually wouldn't live in because, I mean, it was because him and his family were minorities. Um, so like, obviously this still happens today. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how much education you have. Really nothing matters, but like your physical appearance. I don't know if anybody else wants to say anything about that. Um. The other thing besides physical appearance that should come into play is also like your name when you put in your applications mm -hmm. because minority names um, can be a red flag to uh, landlords or um, if you're purchasing a house uh, or renting um, because they may not want to sell or rent to somebody of a different race or ethnicity. Um, so that can be something that's very uh mindful to some people and they could say like oh they don't make as much money or they have different cultural like things that they don't want to be around or just something that tends to come up where you're just not even going to be called so yeah and today um something that they're looking at with something to look at in in the discrimination in the rental world is IPV also, um, interpersonal. Um, in, in intimate partnership, so I would say IP, they look at that too. So discrimination is coming in uh, different forms um, today also. And as I was reading an article, it, it can, you can even be, a person can even be discriminated against based on religion, um, gender um, assignment or whatever, you know. So it's not just racial, which is one of the biggest, you know, um, color and, um, culture but we're finding here late of late it is um, gender and religion and adding on to that i read that um landlords they like they don't like it when um people that are renting out their places have a history of domestic violence or are currently um, experiencing domestic violence because that's a liability. Um, that's property that can be damaged. And, you know, unfortunately it's not people first with them. So that gives them a reason to evict um, people that are in domestic violence situations, which is unfortunate. And, uh, there's a lot of laws that you know protect victims and survivors of domestic violence, but not everybody knows the law, like you know, at the back of their hand. So they take that to their advantage. 
And when they have that law, there's still the fact that it's the time and the resources that you have to spend and it's mm-hmm. more trauma to the victims themselves and how much trauma is worth the effort versus going to somebody who's willing to say, I accept you for you when you're trying to be safe, because that's not, when is emotionally safety versus your physical safety? And there's the weighing of that when it comes to living, because that's what the person dealt with if they're survivors and victims, because they just left that. So they mm-hmm. that is a personal choice that individuals have to make. Um, something that is being experimented in in Canada um, is they're making the men leave and go to shelters or mm-hmm. a shelter in Alberta, Canada, mm-hmm. and the women are not stigmatized as the same way, um, which is kind of an interesting perspective because the men are then able to get the treatment that they need at the same time because... And it's not all men are are perpetrators, but this is focused on men. Mm -hmm. And so while they're there, because pattern of violence continues, uh, it's not like they're just gonna go and stop until they get the treatment that they need. So they're able to stay in these places and victims and survivors are able to stay and not be seen as have that stigma in their households. So it's an interesting concept and it's a very progressive concept. Mm-hmm. And our housing, because what's the statistic of women who become homeless is nearly when they're homeless, besides the people that are homeless, what is it? Nearly like 50% have experienced domestic violence. Right? Yeah. Yep. At least they become and the children are affected domestic violence. So it's one of these concepts of, it's almost a preventative instead of a reactive. Yeah, it definitely is. I was talking to a friend about how stable housing for everyone is like, it prevents a lot of different things and specifically with domestic violence, like um, I, have pulled up here, roughly 80% of homeless mothers with children have previously experienced domestic violence. 230,000 children living in shelter have been exposed to the traumatic and long-term effects of domestic violence. And in New York City specifically, um, domestic violence has consistently been among the leading causes of family homelessness. So at that, it just becomes a cycle. Like it's already so hard to find housing just like a, a someone that's not really experiencing um, domestic violence or whatnot, but being like a DV victim or survivor on top of being homeless, on top of having a family, on top of financial stuff and just everything, it's like the systems that we have in place right now are definitely not victim survivor oriented, which I wonder what, I don't know in the future what this country is gonna do about that which I'm not sure, like, I don't have much hope, but it's nice to see people working in their communities to at least alleviate, alleviate some of the pain that these people go through. Um, 
I think when it comes to intimate partner violence, um, the concept that Michelle was talking about with what Canada has been doing sounds like a really good idea because when I'm thinking about uh, victims of domestic violence that are um, trying to consider how to get out of the situation that they're in, um, a lot of the time financial abuse is a huge part of that situation. And when you don't have access to financial security, it it just stacks on top of all of the other restrictions that go into finding stable housing whenever you are able to leave. Mm -hmm. um, and um, then uh, when it comes to like low income housing or um, like community support for housing, um, in Tacoma particularly and across the country, it's really hard for places like Tacoma Housing Authority to be, e to be able to even build those low income housing opportunities and spaces because of redlining. Um, uh, the majority of, of the area in Tacoma is zoned for single family housing um, to keep up like the aesthetic of the, of the area and all these different things because they don't want to flood the area with apartment buildings or um, whatever the case may be, but really it's, it's to keep the uh, more financially uh, stable people and uh, more likely white and more privileged people in one area and mm -hmm. disadvantaged people in another. Um, but that means that places like Tacoma Housing Authority has the money to build these housing opportunities, but there's nowhere to put them. And so there's all of these wait lists and, and even more restrictions when it comes to accessing housing that makes it incredibly hard for someone to even be able to leave a domestic violence situation in the first place. On top of that, there's also when there are shelters, usually shelters are created in particular for like women, it's women and family, like children, then there's the restriction of what age the children can stay and then the children have to separate and there's less shelters for single women versus how men's shelters work. There's, it's just so complicated. It, it is and uh, Michelle, I looked at, uh, I looked up, um, I was looking at discrimination and housing and I came across um, something that was interesting. So I'm just gonna read a little bit of it. Women experiencing severe or life-threatening IPV often turn to domestic violence shelter programs for immediate safety and assistance. But it goes on to say, um, talk about black women that go to shelters and how um, they are treated. And it says, while clients satisfaction with shelters tends to be high in general, concerns have been raised that some shelter programs are not as welcoming or relevant to black survivors compared with white survivors. So, I, I mean, you know, you, in, in my mind, reality is a shelter is there to shelter who needs it, right? Especially domestic violence, but they make it um, hard for um, people of color, women of color 
to enter into a shelter. So um, it's like, where does it stop? When, when does it stop? Cause it's everywhere. And I, I also, as I read on, I um, saw um, a part of, um, I saw something that I wasn't familiar with, racial uh, microaggression, just reading that kind of thing. And then it, it brought me back to thinking about um, when, uh, when black women are asked, why don't they contact, um, law enforcement when they're in a DV scenario, because there's a stigma and there's a, there's a um, stereotype put on black women, they're angry, or they're not gonna be, be believed, or it's minimized or dismissed. And so, you know, the communication be, is different to a, uh, for a black woman trying to enter into a shelter than it is for a white woman, the microaggression, for instance, an example is um, um, a white woman saying to a black uh, woman, I don't mean to, to be racist, but I just think black women have anger issues. So you you know you did that's dealt with and that's um, that's interesting that a um, a woman in a um, DV scenario trying to get into uh, a shelter and you're already traumatized then you got to deal with the discrimination and, and 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 if you're at a shelter that is considered elite or whatever predominantly white, it's like, you know, what is going on here? Every time I hear somebody say that comment that you just said, mm -hmm. the, I, I shake my head like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, because it's one of those things that I, I, I just can't believe somebody says it. So I just figured I'd acknowledge it <laughs> because I, I, that is one of those blinders that I, I acknowledge I have. So I figured I'd acknowledge it to you because I, I'm not shaking no, that it's not true. I'm shaking right, no, right. I, I can't believe it. So Bethel, I figured I'd say it to you too. I, I, I can't <laughs> believe, I just, I just, I'm mortified by it. Right. So I have the blinders and I know they're there, but I figure I'd acknowledge it. Like I, I just, there are certain ones like I, I, I so there's also the other one to um, also mention is uh, disability. Mm -hmm. yep. um, it's housing, housing discrimination. Uh, doors aren't wide enough or um, the bathroom toilet isn't tall enough. Uh, the sink isn't wide enough or low enough. Um, I think it's low enough. Might be not, I don't know. I don't remember. I just don't remember, sorry. Um, the parking people don't, there's not a parking spot, mm -hmm. something like those. And then also the DV aspect. And then there's invisible, invisible disability, which people don't talk about because you can't see that there's a disability and physical disability uh, on top of those. So the invisible ones where you can't see it, but like there's mental health disabilities, there could be like um, somebody who's 
uh, blind or unless they have like a walker, like a walking cane or, I mean, like those types, um, I mean, those are big deals and those, those make a big difference with housing. And maybe you don't see like, if you go into an elevator and you don't have the proper uh, accommodations for like picking the button, you know, and you always mm -hmm. go off the wrong spot mm -hmm. and then add domestic violence into it. And then this correct shelter, they don't accommodate for those. Right. And, and you know, probably like maybe what, 20, 30 years ago, ADA was a big deal. You had to be in compliance. And um, I know right down the street from me, there's a really nice apartment complex. And they only, I, I don't know how many units, maybe 64 or over, but they have just one ADA um, compliant unit. And it's like, really? And so, do, who do we blame that on? I mean, who do we look at? Because when they're building, it used to be they had to be in compliance. And I mean, you go to older buildings and they don't have uh, an elevator. It's an old building, ADA. It was before ADA um, was um, enforced, put into um, the bill law. But the only thing that I see that is compliant, like you, uh, um, when you say that for disabilities, <laughs> you go to shopping areas and where there used to be one to three parking spaces, they have a whole front row of handicapped parking spaces. But like you said, the doors, you know, aren't, aren't compliant for wheelchair compliant, elevator isn't compliant. Um, the units aren't compliant, you know, they're not complying with uh, unit. So I, I would think in my mind, um, I don't know, a, a, um, a property with like 75, I, I don't know what the law is, but just one, one unit to, um, to uh, accommodate a person with a disability just one unit on the whole property. So it just makes you look at the whole thing, right? And who makes the noise to get it changed? What, what happens? What do we do? Even with the redlining that's still in place. And a great fact from the Paralympics, 15% of society around the entire world has disabilities. Mm -hmm. are differently abled, mm -hmm. not disabilities, differently abled. So if we're looking at different races, different abilities, different gender identities, different religion, it's just different people. We're just people. Right. We're just With people. With differences. We're, yeah, we're just people. No, we're just people. Yeah. So the thing is, is when there's all these housing and they're treating people differently, they shouldn't be treated differently. There needs to be just one way and it's just coming in a wrong frame of mind because somebody doesn't like that they look different. I mean, a great example, this is a great example and I 
sorry, I'm using me. I have a twin with a different last name and a different first name. And we could probably submit the same application with different names. But the second they saw us, they could treat us the exact same because we look alike. You know, so like, how do you go about that? And I mean, other people could have the same thing, right? So two names are different. So right there, you put them in, they would go, oh, this person, I don't like their name. Mm -hmm. But then you could do it the opposite way where we had had before she was married, we had the, we could have just put on our last names and they could have taken it. And the second they saw it, they were like, oh, we don't like how they look. So it's kind of an interesting concept when you think of it that way. And that's and not it's a reality. How, it's a reality. It's not how housing should work. Or anything else for that matter, Michelle. But it does, you know, I've I've heard people say they called about an apartment, and I'll I'll be specific. My sister was in a fire and in an apartment here, what in April, March or April. So she lost everything. So she's looking for um, uh, an apartment, a place to stay once she stabilized. And she would call different places and um, she was so discouraged. And she's like, I call, her voice is very soft and you cannot identify that she is a woman of color over the phone. So she called several places and she would call me and say, I think I found a place and they said it's vacant and to come and look at it and, and I can put a down payment on it and blah, 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 right? She gets there, they see her and tell her, oh, the place has been rented or someone just so we had someone before you and blah, 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 you know? And that was so discouraging to her because in her mind, there, there's, no, there's no racism when it comes to this. Welcome to the real world, my dear, really. And it, it's, it's just disheartening that it still goes on, but it goes on and it is a reality, right? I wanted to bring up, um, I was thinking about it when y'all were talking, but Beverly was talking about how Black women, you know, there's a stigma when reporting domestic violence to the police. And it reminded me of like people who are not in heteronormative um, relationships. That's also a struggle for them because one, the history between law enforcement and like the LGBTQ plus community isn't really a great one. And then on top of that, domestic violence across like all relationships isn't really taken seriously sometimes um, by those with authority. And so, you know, think about Chidipak. So people who are part of the LGBTQ plus community and that they're people of color as well. It's just, everything just becomes a lot more difficult when like you can speak for, you know, like my experience as a six cis black woman versus like I won't have the same experience as like a trans black woman or something. And even in those little things, it's so it's just so disheartening to see that you can't really win in both ways, you know, even mm -hmm. though I have that tiny piece of privilege, 
it's still the end result may be the same. Part of it's because of, and it's from my experience of witnessing their lack of wanting the training. And that's just from witnessing it. And hopefully they're starting to want to get more training, but in the years that I've seen it, there hasn't been the openness to want to learn and embrace it. If they take the training, they take it because it's mandatory, not because they're willing to listen. They hear it, but it's not the listening part and they don't question things. And part of learning is questioning. And we're, it's, it's good to say, why, how come I don't understand? Make mistakes with your words and use the wrong pronouns and things like that's how you learn. And I think with those kinds of situations, it's it's humbling to do those things. And um, that's just what I've witnessed personally. And it's one of those things that cult, even in society, it's something talking about race and LGBT community and even, especially those mixed together is something I think people are scared to talk about. I think a part of it is that um, when it comes to like realtors and people that handle housing and all of that, um, we don't generally tend to uh, think or see people in those positions as ones that would need to go to training when it comes to like racial sensitivity and gender sensitivity and, and understanding different people um, because it I feel like trainings are seen as something for like school people like teachers or nonprofit organization workers people that are working in those specific um, types of of positions that are uh, meant to be trying to bring equity to the community and that's where there's a large gap that it's not dependent on just those people that are trying to bring change or are working so um, like in the depths of the community. It depends on everyone that's involved to be engaged in education and learning and, and trying to get to know what it is that's different about the people around them and, and um, how to interact with so many different people. And um, I think it's also not recognized that like realtors are community people. They're in the community and they're working with people of the community to put them in homes in the community. Like they, they're a core central part, but aren't um, identified or, or treated as such. Um, and so I think that's an interesting thing that maybe our sister's house could um, start talking to some uh, realtor companies in the area or something and ask if if they'd be interested in some trainings and uh, present some ideas as to like why it would be such a good idea um, because I think that uh, the awareness needs to be the attention like the they need to have their attention brought to it um, and then something can be done about it well thank you guys I think that's it for Confabulation today. We'd like to thank all of our viewers and listeners. 
And again, if you or anyone that you know is experiencing domestic violence, please don't hesitate to call our sister's house at 253-383-4275. Or again, visit us at our website, oursistershouse.com. We bid you peace and farewell.